0: Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, the word of the Lord.
1: If you were to liken Scripture to a journey, one of the first things you would notice is that the landscape is constantly changing. So some parts of Scripture are like a lush meadow where you're um, lying down in green pastures and getting led beside still waters. Other parts of Scripture are like an arid desert. If you've ever started reading the Bible in Genesis and then stalled out when you got to Leviticus, you know what this is like. Other parts of the Bible are like a storm at sea. Think of the book of Job or many of the Psalms. And other parts of the Bible are like a dense forest. Reading the letters of Paul can be kind of like this. But then there are other times when God in Scripture, it's like He takes us by the hand and he leads us to the top of a mountain, and he says, I want to show you something. He, he leads us up to the top of the mountain, and he pulls back the veil for just a moment, and he gives us a glimpse of things we've seen before, but now we're looking at them from a completely different perspective. Instead of looking at them from the valley in which they take place, we're seeing them from a the top of a high mountain, and that perspective changes everything. Everything. This passage that we just read is one of those places. In Romans 5 through 7, Paul, it's like he's kind of walking up the foothills, so to speak. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul starts climbing a mountain. He starts talking about things like the Christian life and the power of the Holy Spirit that fills our life and especially the glory that one day we're going to share with Jesus Christ. But no sooner does Paul mention glory halfway through, verse 17, then the question comes up, but Paul, what about all the sin, evil, and suffering in this beleaguered world? And the whole second half of Romans chapter 8 is Paul addressing this question. You know, the Bible is not afraid of the hardest questions. In fact, God is always the first one to ask the hard questions. So here at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul as it were, is he, he looks down, he takes us to the top of a mountain, and, and we can look down on the battlefield of this world with all its wreckage, ruin, sin, and evil. He, we look at all of this, and Paul asks the question, what do we say to these things? What do we say to these things? You know, in, in this passage here in Romans 8, Paul is not saying anything different, in essence, than what he's already said throughout the book of Romans. He's not telling us anything new here. He is saying it differently, and that makes all the difference. When you face the hardest things in life, what is it that you need more than anything else? Here in the last section of Romans 8, Paul is giving it to us. What is it? Well, let's find out by hiking up the mountain with Paul And letting him be our tour guide. Um, He's gonna show us answers to three questions. When you face the hardest things in life, what do we want? What do we need? And where do we find it? Okay? What do we want? What do we need? And where do we find it? Okay? First, what do we want? Um, As I just mentioned, Paul begins this section by, um, by asking this question. What then shall we say in response to these things? Now, the obvious question is, well, what are these things? What does that mean? Well, Paul tells us explicitly um, by asking a series of questions in the next few verses. And by the way, these are the same questions we ask when life goes sideways, when things get hard. These are the kinds of things that make us doubt in a loving God or even doubt that God exists. So let's look at some of the questions. First, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Do you ever feel like the world is conspiring against you? Paul names that reality. Or look at the next question. He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Do you ever feel like you're being falsely accused of all kinds of unjust things? Paul names that reality. In fact, this is an especially um, challenging question for us because notice he says, those whom God has chosen. He's talking about the church. Now, the very first Christians really were falsely accused of all kinds of unjust things. But in our world, there are a lot of accusations against the church that are true. The church really is filled with things like hypocrisy, injustice, abuse, misogyny, and all kinds of other evils. And these are the kinds of things that for many people, maybe even some of you, cause people to doubt in a loving God or maybe even to doubt God's existence at all. But it's not just the failures of the church that cause doubt. It's this world that we live in. So look at the last question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul just runs through the list of all the hardest things in the world. And he says, these are the things that we struggle with. These are the questions that demand an answer. So here's the question for us what kind of an answer are we looking for? When you face the hardest things of life, what do we want? One of the challenges for us is that we live in the modern West. Now, not everybody here was born in the West or grew up in the West, but all of us are living in the modern West. And the modern West has been inescapably shaped by a little intellectual movement that happened about 500 years ago called the Enlightenment and we talk about this pretty frequently. Here's how the story goes. Ancient people used to believe in things like God, sin, salvation, um, angels, demons, final judgment, and heaven. But then the modern world was born, and so now we modern people, we tend to rely less on traditional authority sources like the church. Now we tend to rely more on things like science, logic, reason, and evidence. And as a result, one of the big ideas of the Enlightenment is that unless you can prove something scientifically on the basis of irrefutable evidence, then you can't really know it. And as a result of that, one of the big critiques against religion is that religious people are addicted to a need for something. What is it? Risk-free certainty. One of the big critiques against religion is that religious people are addicted, so addicted to a need for risk-free certainty that they shut their eyes to all the evidence and they blindly cling to their doctrines and their dogmas and their um, superstitious religious beliefs. Have you ever heard a critique like that? It's pretty common. Here's one of the really interesting things. One of the big ways that religious people in the West have responded to this critique is to say, no, 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 look. We can prove the Bible scientifically. We can prove God's existence rationally. Do you see what's happened? Whether religious people cling to doctrines and theological statements or whether they try to prove God's existence in the Bible scientifically and rationally, either way, religious people are still oftentimes operating out of a need for risk-free certainty. But here's the, the thing. When they do, or can we just say when we do that When we do that, when we're operating out of a need for risk-free certainty, what we're doing is we're capitulating to the Enlightenment's paradigm. Because one of the main ideas of the the Enlightenment is that the only legitimate category of knowledge is risk-free certainty. Risk-free certainty is an Enlightenment category that dominates our culture. But here's the thing, friends. With all due respect, this is an illusion. So if you um, listen to... um, uh, other views of the world, one uh, like a purely scientific view of the world that says there is no God, this world is all there is. A purely scientific view of the world will present itself as offering you risk-free certainty. It will present itself as being purely neutral and objective. There's no faith, there's no emotion, there's no soppy sentimentality. It's purely rational, purely objective. But then when you actually listen to the way that view Narrates itself, what you realize is that it's not just a statement of cold scientific fact, it's actually a narrative that's making a powerful emotional and moral appeal. There's a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor who calls this a coming of age narrative. Now, let me explain what this means by giving you an example of it. In 1859, Charles Darwin came out with his theory of evolution, and it rocked the world. Especially the theory of evolution rocked many people's faith in God. You may be aware that right now, today in America, many people are deconstructing their faith in God. Did you know that in late 19th century England, during the Victorian era, there was a massive deconstruction movement that took place at that time? And many people were giving up their faith in God, in many um, cases, because of the theory of evolution. And so they would say things like this. They said, hey, we have to bow before the brute facts of science. But then they would also say something like this, because that's the truly mature, adult, courageous thing to do. This is a coming-of-age narrative that says, once upon a time we were childish and we believed in God, but now we've grown up and, we, and we're, we're doing the mature adult thing. We've given up faith in God and we're just facing the brute scientific facts. This is not just a statement of cold scientific fact. This is a, a narrative that's making a powerful emotional and moral appeal. And it's full of faith assumptions. That faith assumptions that say, hey, things like virtue and dignity and courage and nobility and things like that it's better to live this way than any other way i mean think about it virtue dignity those things like if this world is nothing more than the result of a mindless unguided natural process then those things are maybe they're um, chemical reactions in our brain or maybe they're human social contracts but they are not eternal realities we must obey and yet, when you listen to coming-of-age narratives, that's exactly how they often portray them, not a statement of cold scientific fact. It's a narrative that's making a powerful moral appeal. It's kind of like, um, have you ever seen those Be Like Bill memes on social media? There'll be a picture of a stick figure like, named Bill or Emily or Jose or whatever, and it'll say, I don't know if you can read this, Bill is on the internet, there he is, Bill sees something that offends him, Bill moves on. Bill is smart. Be like Bill. That's a narrative that is making a moral appeal. It's casting a moral vision. Friends, that is exactly what so many coming-of-age narratives are doing. It's not just a statement of cold scientific fact. It's a narrative that's making a moral appeal. So let me give you a modern-day example of this. Richard Dawkins is a scientist and, and one of the most famous atheists in the world. In one of his books, he says this, that the universe we observe has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. These are the cold, hard facts. But then he acknowledges that human beings can't live without meaning, so he says this, the truly adult view is that our life is as meaningful, as full, and wonderful as we choose to make it. He doesn't say the truly rational view, the truly adult view. It's a coming-of-age narrative. It's not a statement of cold scientific fact. This is a narrative that's making a powerful moral appeal. Hey, we used to be childish, and we believed in things like God, but now we've grown up, and the truly adult thing is that we no longer believe in God. We face the brute scientific facts. Be like Bill. Friends, here's the point. We all struggle with the hard things of life. In fact, if we could take verse 35 and paraphrase it for our modern world, we could say it like this. What shall make us doubt the love of Christ? Shall anxiety or depression or climate change or racism or nationalism or pandemics or mass shootings? We all struggle with the hard things of life. But I want to invite us to consider the possibility that our greatest struggle As hard as these things are, that our greatest struggle isn't with the hard things of life. Our greatest struggle is with our lack of assurance in the face of them. We want risk-free certainty, but no such thing exists, and it terrifies us. So whether you're a religious person and you cling to doctrines or theological statements about God, or whether we try to come up with scientific proof for why God exists and why we can trust the Bible, or whether you're a skeptical person, And you've given up on childish faith and flying spaghetti monsters and fairy tales and you just claim to live by cold scientific facts. It's purely rational, purely objective. Wherever you're at, every single one of us is constantly bumping up against the reality that there is an utter absence of risk-free certainty. And we're constantly trying to come up with answers to the hard things of life that claim to give it to us and they never do. So where does that leave us? Well, that leads to our next point. Um, when you're facing the hard things of life, what do we want? We want risk-free certainty, but it's not really available to us. So that's the second question. What do we need? Because if there really is, if the risk-free certainty we want isn't really available to us, then are we just out of luck? Or is there something that can help us? Well, um, let's keep hiking up the mountain with Paul. Remember, he's he's asked all these questions, and he's raised all these doubts, and he said, can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on to say, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, let's notice a couple of things about this. First, Paul says that Christians are more than conquerors. That word, literally, it's just one word, and you could translate it super conquerors. I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, I I don't feel like a super conqueror. Most of the time, I don't even feel like a mini conqueror. And yet, Paul says Christians are more than conquerors. But not only that, notice he also says it's in all these things. Not instead of all these things, or after all these things, or in spite of all these things. He says in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Friends, there is a deep tension in the Christian life between our daily struggles in this fallen evil world and the victorious kingdom of God that has broken into this fallen world through the life, death, and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means that on the one hand, it's like the victory's already been won, but in another very real sense, it's like we still live in enemy-occupied territory with landmines and snipers that are constantly shooting at you. As Christians, we live with one foot in each of these worlds. The problem is, as human beings, we have an extremely low tolerance for tension of any kind, and we're always trying to resolve the tension in one direction or another. But if we really want the power of the gospel at work in our lives, then we can never do that. That The power of the gospel means that, that for Christians, one of the main ways that we live is by constantly remembering that we live with one foot in each world, that we are simultaneously in all these things, these hard things, but also more than conquerors. So here's the question. Where do we get the power to live like this? We're celebrating the day of Pentecost today, which means God has poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. The the ultimate reality is that the, the way we can live like this is through the power of the Holy Spirit. But let's be a little bit more specific. What does the Holy Spirit actually empower us to do? Paul shows us one of the main things by continuing on. He says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God, that is, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, rightfully so. It's also incredibly important because notice what Paul says at the beginning, I am convinced. That word convinced... That is a word, it does not mean I have risk-free certainty on the basis of irrefutable evidence. It's a word that means to trust in, to have confidence in, to be persuaded, or to be won over. Friends, Paul is giving us a new category for knowledge here. One of the challenges for us in our modern world, we've talked about this, is that That we live in a world that says there are really only two kinds of knowledge. Either you can have risk-free certainty on the basis of irrefutable evidence, or you can have blind, irrational faith on the basis of nothing at all. Paul is saying, no, there's actually another category. It's not risk-free certainty. It's not irrational faith. It's confidence. Confidence is a different category. It's not risk-free certainty on the basis of irrefutable evidence. If you think about it, you realize there are very few things in this world for which we have irrefutable evidence. There are things we have confidence in. Think about the things that we build our lives on. Think about the things that we construct our whole society on. Things like love, justice, goodness, beauty, human dignity, or care for the poor and the weak. Things like that. We build our lives and our society on these things, but do we have irrefutable evidence for these things? Are you going to find them under a microscope? No. We do have confidence in them. Friends, we all live our lives on the basis of confidence in things we can't prove. Let me say that again. We all live our lives on the basis of confidence in things we can't prove. Now, let's put the footnote on this. Does that mean that that we don't have persuasive reasons for believing in these things? No, we do have persuasive reasons for believing in these. Or we could say it like this. We have good faith reasons for trusting in these things. Good faith reasons for having faith in these things. That means that um, even if we say, look, who can know about you know, things like whether or not there's right or wrong. Who can know whether God exists? Who can know what the ultimate nature of reality is? We can't know. We don't have answers to any of these things. And yet, at the same time, every single day, you walk out the front door of your house and you live your life on the basis of answers to these things, whether you believe there are answers or not. We all live our lives on the basis of confidence in things we can't prove. That's what Paul is saying here. Not that he has risk-free certainty on the basis of irrefutable evidence that God loves him. No, he's saying, I have confidence. I have been persuaded. I have been won over by something. And whatever it is, that's what we need to face the hardest things of life. So here's the question, what is it that we have confidence in? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen, what do we want? We've asked, what do we need? But lastly, where do we find it? Where do, we find where, where do we find this confidence that we need to face the hardest things of life? The answer is hiding in plain sight. And um, the only thing is we don't see it because we're not looking for it. Remember the, the questions that Paul has asked. Remember the first one. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Do you ever feel like the world is conspiring against you? What's the answer to that Well, look at what Paul says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul is saying, look, when you feel like the world is conspiring against you, he's not saying, remember the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He's pointing to the story from which the doctrine comes. He's saying the same thing, but he's saying it differently now. In fact, he's pointing back to the story of Abraham. This word or this phrase, spare his own son, his own son, comes from the book of Genesis. He's saying, hey, you remember how Abraham took his own son, Isaac, and they went to the top of a mountain, and Abraham did not spare his own son. He was going to give him up, but at the last minute, God graciously provided a substitute for Isaac so that Isaac could live. In the same way, God has graciously provided for us, but instead of providing a substitute for Jesus, He provided Jesus as our substitute, so that when you feel like the world is against you, you can know, you can have confidence that God is for you. Or look at the next question. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who is the one who condemns? you ever feel accused and condemned? Do you ever feel like you've been cut off from love and belonging in this world? Does Paul say, hey, when you feel like this, just remember the doctrine of imputed righteousness? No. He points us to the story from which the doctrine comes. Look at what he says. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's saying, when you feel accused, when you feel condemned, even if it's true, instead of trying to come up with these intellectual propositions that are going to help you feel better about yourself, remember the story of Jesus, the truly innocent one, who stood before the rulers of the world. He was falsely accused. He was unjustly condemned. And he was brutally put to death on the cross. And and Jesus, not only that, was raised from the dead. And now he's standing before the throne of heaven advocating for you so that when you feel condemned, even if it's true, you can know that there's somebody standing up for you. He doesn't point us to the doctrines. He points us to the story from which the doctrine comes. Friends, every time that we feel and we face the hard things of life, we have a tendency, we want to look for risk-free certainty on the basis of irrefutable evidence. We want tidy answers and satisfying solutions and, um, and, and intellectual propositions that will give us risk-free certainty on the basis of irrefutable evidence. But Paul is saying here, look, even if God was to give that to you, it still wouldn't satisfy you. We'd still say, well, what about this? Or what about that? The answer is hiding in plain sight. When Paul says, hey, when you're faced with the hardest things of life, God is not giving us irrefutable evidence. What is he pointing to? The answer is hiding in plain sight, but we don't see it because we're not looking for it. Instead of pointing us to irrefutable evidence, Paul is pointing us to the person of Jesus Friends, here's the big message this morning. If there's one thing you walk away with this morning, here's what I want you to walk away with. When you face the hardest things of life, God doesn't give you irrefutable evidence. He gives you an irrefutable person. When you face the hardest things of life, God is not giving you irrefutable evidence and risk-free certainty. He's giving you confidence through good faith reasons for trusting in this irrefutable person of Jesus So, if this is true, and it is, then what does this mean for us, practically speaking? Let me offer you just a couple of thoughts as we close this morning. And and, and the first one is this, if you're exploring faith, or if you are, maybe you're skeptical, maybe you're even disillusioned about God and faith, and, and specifically maybe even Christianity, but maybe the door is still open to a conversation. Listen, are there legitimate questions That deserve reasonable answers if you're going to put your faith in jesus and follow him of course there are when i was 30 years old i was exploring faith and not just christianity but a whole host of other things and i had questions about christianity maybe some of the same questions that you have i had questions like what about evil and suffering in the world What about the hypocrisy of the church? And especially for me, one of my big questions was, what about the exclusivity of Christianity? How can Jesus be the only way to God? I struggled with that. If you are seeking answers for your questions, you should seek answers for those questions. But one of the things that happened to me is I got to a point where the endless asking of questions, actually, at at, at a certain point, it kept me from moving forward. And I remember one night in particular, I was a musician at the time, I had just finished a gig, and I was hanging out in the parking lot with a guitar player who was a, a friend of mine who happened to be a Christian. And I was sharing all of this with him and sharing all my questions with him, and he said, Eric, man, those are really good, really important questions, but there's one question you're not asking and you need to ask it. And I said, what do you mean? What question am I not asking? And he said, is Jesus Lord or not? Is Jesus resurrected from the dead or not? Because if he's not resurrected from the dead, then none of these questions matter. But if he is resurrected from the dead, then it's the ultimate question that matters. Listen, if you're exploring faith, you should seek answers for your questions. As I have continued through my own Christian life, I have continued to seek answers for these questions. They're important questions if you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, that doesn't mean you stop listening to things like science, philosophy, history, logic, reason, or evidence. And if anything, you you pay more attention to those things. But there comes a point when the endless asking of those kinds of questions can actually be a way of keeping Jesus at arm's length. A way of keeping Jesus at sheerly an intellectual level rather than letting him get to work in your heart, which is what he wants to do. When you're facing the hardest things in life, God doesn't give you irrefutable evidence. He gives you an irrefutable person. Put your faith in him. Put your confidence in him. But secondly, if you are a follower of Jesus, here's my encouragement for you. When I was a kid, my uh, parents used to take my brother and me to Disneyland in Southern California and, of course, we loved rides like Space Mountain and Matterhorn, really exciting rides. But, but one of my favorite rides was a ride that it, it's called Autopia. It's a, a racetrack, and you get to um, drive your own little race car. When I was a kid, I loved this ride. But because it's for little kids, of course, they had to put some safeguards in place. So one of the things they did, I don't know if you can see it, but they put a little guide rail in the track so that even if you take your hands off the wheel you won't crash. Your wheels may bump up against the guide rail, but you're not going to crash the car. Okay? The other thing they did is they set the idle on the car, the speed on the car in such a way that even if you take your foot off the gas pedal, the car will still move forward slowly. So that even if you take your hands off the steering wheel and even if you take your foot off the gas pedal, you may be in for a rough ride, but as long as you stay in the car, you're going to get to the end of the track friends every time we face the hardest things of life we want risk free certainty we think that the car is risk free certainty on the basis of irrefutable evidence but god when the, when you face the hardest things of life he's not offering you irrefutable evidence he's offering you an irrefutable person jesus is the car stay in the car the ride may not be pretty But you won't crash. So that when you're facing the hardest things of life, you can stay in the car because Jesus stayed on the cross. Jesus didn't bail on you when things get hard, He didn't bail when things got rough. You can stay in the car. Because Jesus stayed on the cross for you. Because Jesus stayed on the cross so that he could hold on to you when things get rough for you, when things get hard for you, when your wheels are grinding against the rail, you can stay in the car because Jesus stayed on the cross. When you're facing the hardest things in life, the thing you need more than anything else is not irrefutable evidence that God loves you. It's an irrefutable person, an irrefutable savior. Jesus is the car. If you're exploring faith, Turn to him. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, stay in him. He is the car. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for your gracious gifts to us, Lord. That even though there are legitimate answers, reasonable answers to all of our deepest, hardest questions, even more than that, you have so graciously given given us not just irrefutable evidence, you have given us an irrefutable person Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this morning that you would strengthen and encourage us. Whether we're exploring faith, help us to ask the question of who is Jesus. And Father, if we are followers of Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen us and help us by your Holy Spirit to stay in the car, to stay in Jesus because he stayed on the cross for us. Help us to follow you faithfully in this world and to serve you obediently in this world. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.